This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 199 is Alan Jenkins, a singer-songwriter guitarist who's recorded over 50 albums for his Cordelia Records label. He started in the late 70s in Leicester, England with the Deep Freeze Mice. You're right now hearing a red light from the greens from their 1982 album, The Gates of Lunch. After a decade with that band, he was in The Chrysanthemums, Ruth's Refrigerator, The Creams, and in the year 2000, shifted his focus to instrumental experimental surf music with the thirst in lava tube for about a decade he released the first album under his own name in 2011 and typically records now as alan jenkins and the kettering vampires today we'll talk about the multi-bear from his latest be my enemy one pound then look all the way back to hitler's knees from the deep freeze mice from saw a ranch house burning last night in 1983 then back near the present to the morozovo meteorite by his current experimental surf project, the Melamine Division Plates, from their album Novosibirsk, from the beginning of this year. Then we'll look at the 90s with The Eagle Hates Your Poetry by Alan Jenkins and the Creams from their 1994 album IE. And we'll conclude by listening to Nobody's Getting My Hair by the Chrysanthemums from their reunion album 2022's Decoy for a Dog Napper. For more information about all these releases, see cordeliarecords.co.uk. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of A Red Light for the Greens from The Gates of Lunch, 1982 by Deep Freeze Mice. It's listed as your most played song by the Deep Freeze Mice right now. Was that a hit of the time? Was that the height of the fame of that band at that moment? Perhaps it was, yes. They gave it away on a, a CD that was mounted on a, a magazine in Greece. And I wasn't sure the thing that is the most catchy immediately is that keyboard riff. But is that the kind of thing that you had in mind going into it? Or is that something that surely your keyboardist would come up with? She would have created some of the pop. But I think the main tune mm-hmm. came with the song. I took a full four weeks just to alert the uh, listeners to get ready for this one because your catalog is so massive that I just even to get a good I, I still didn't get through every little bit of it but I got through a lot to get a, a sense of the shape of this that it seems like this band Deep Freeze Mice was sort of in that same that there was a pocket of what post-punk British you know soft boys XTC probably many Echo and the Bunny Men. I don't know did you even consider yourselves like I guess the monochrome set is what Spotify was recommending to me after listening to you and I've had bid from that band on here which was at least sort of related to Robin Hitchcock and the Soft Boys. Was there a, an actual thing that you were fitting into the zeitgeist at the moment? Most of those bands were people that we were listening to at the time. Okay. Uh, the monochrome, especially. Not for the very early mice. I hadn't. By the time we got to the fourth album, there was def- definite monochrome that influenced that. So that band continues through most of the 80s. Then you start collaborating more. We'll talk about some of those bands. Then move to this, you know, at least a good chunk of your attention going to instrumental space surf music. Is that how you characterize the the genre? Yeah, you could call it that. Yeah. Okay. Experimental surf music is what it is. Yeah. Yes. In the aughts. And then you've been releasing mostly things under your own name for at least the last 10 years, Alan Jenkins and the Kettering Vampires, but still keeping up some other projects. Does that seem like a good general shape of the career? I mean, it seems like it's characterized by the fact that you run your label, which you started pretty early on, right? Cordelia Records was 83 or something? Yeah, 84, yeah. Okay. Is that how you make your living? Like doing studio work for other people and then using that to support, what is it, two albums a year at least, pretty continuously? Well, I used to earn a living by recording other people Mm -hmm. before I moved out of Leicester. All right, well, can you give us, uh, before we hear something off the new one, Be My Enemy, One Pound, 2023, the multi-bear was the closing track off that that I had picked. It's sort of spoken word absurdist stuff, which was sort of there from the beginning of your career. We've got some programmed stuff, some some really cool orchestration. This is why I picked this, because even though it's only three minutes, it has quite a bit of build in it. 
Any introductory words about this song before people hear it? That's a difficult one to get into lyrically. I think just listen to it is the way to go. I can't interpret it. idea of the multi-bear came in spring I saw it first as a fine skin fashioned into an airship over Beijing the unknown arguing that we deduced from its bones And the contents of its phone were the most contrary set of attitudes and values that the world had ever known. But now its cover was blown. So I picked this one because it had a nice mix of really nice lyrical stuff. I mean, this very pretty melody. And with, is that actual thumb piano or is that a synth? I think it's a Celeste. It's a Celeste sample. I did get a, a kalimba for Christmas this year. So that, that does feature on a couple of tracks. But I don't, I don't think that's it though. I guess if you reverb did enough, it would sound that nice. But <laughs> that has the sound of a very nicely recorded something or other sample yeah no it's an artificial keyboard sound basically so my purpose with these you know i've got the lyrics in front of me that i transcribe but is not to say what does this line mean what is it but you know when i talked to robin hitchcock about this recently he was like i have to enter this sort of fugue state and just kind of automatic writing like is that kind of what you're doing or is it more deliberate and I know what all these metaphors mean or it's not a fugue state as Robin Hitchcock would describe it's more specific things joined together that sometimes of the song like that you do just write and see what happens but Robin Hitchcock is so much better at describing this than I am <laughs> I've seen him talk in interviews so for instance like I saw it as a fine skin fashioned into an airship over Beijing like that could just be, I'm just picking words that sound interesting together. But then half the time I talk to people about this kind of line and they're like, oh yeah, I was just looking in the paper about a thing over Beijing. When you're saying you're combining things, does that mean you're sort of looking around and reading off, you know, whatever the news story of the day is, or is it more abstract than that? Well, it's more abstract than that, but it, it does tell a sort of a story. You can put it together if you listen to all the words and there's some sort of narrative in there, I think, isn't there? I'm trying to even remember if there's any words after the first minute and a half. So I think, I mean, it's it's more of a, a short poem. And then the rest of it is you've got a nice guitar solo and these are sampled horns, I assume. No, not real horns. No, no, unfortunately. Mostly happens at the end, doesn't it, on that song? It's got a long introduction. Yes. And then gurgles into this electronic drum thing. Computer gibberish is what I wrote. <laughs> really good at creating these atmospheres in songs that we're going to start off the song with just like, so any thoughts on how you're, are these samples or these things you're putting together with loops or how are you like in this song? If you recall, I don't tend to use loops. The drums will be a patchwork of stuff, but not the same thing going all the way through the ending after the guitar solo. That's something else. Actually, that's not part of the song. Oh, okay. I added that because the album ended too abruptly with it as the last track. 
So I thought I needed to wind down a bit. It didn't seem like a good ending. The proper song ends just on the next beat right after the guitar solo ends. Well, that's too bad. I already left the end part in. So we get to hear a little bit of the, of the noisescape that you use to, to fill things out. That it's not just. No, no, it's, it is officially part of the song okay. now, but it wasn't when it was first recorded. Like I recall one of your other solo albums. Well, it was actually the first one under Jody and the Creams where there's a bunch, I believe, of untitled little snippets at the end. I mean, is that kind of the same thing that you're just, I'm doing a little experimental noise piece today, you know, or, or no, they, were bonus, they were bonus tracks for the CD, I think, weren't they? They were little compositions in their own right. This little end part, was this a little composition in its own right? It's made up of about two or three different tracks that were recorded in the sessions that didn't get used. It's just a little collage okay. of things that were lying around. So something created actually during the mixing process. Yeah. Any thoughts about just how your approach to that, those lyrics and things? I just, I just know, you know, myself comparing the frequency with which and the, the situations in which I was writing lyrics when I started my career are so different than now. But yet we've got between here and, you know, a lot of at least the more spoken word stuff on the Deep Freeze Mice albums. It seems like a lot of continuity, at least a, a similar. I mean, we'll get to a, an older song in a little bit that you were sort of declaiming, saying, oh, this is only something a young person would write. But any, any thoughts on sort of how your method, your style of writing this kind of story has evolved? Is this even the kind of thing, this very compact, that you feel like you could have produced 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Yeah, there are probably comparable tracks from the Deep Freeze Mice if you look for them. Hitler's Knees is nothing like it whatsoever, of course. The song you're talking about. That's a young person's song, isn't it? Just as, as you said, at least it's obvious what it's about. Since we're talking about it, let's not do this chronologically. Let's just jump right back to the olden days and then we can work our way. We'll bounce around a little bit. The album was called Saw a Ranch House Burning Last Night from 1983. So this was what the fourth, the fifth album? Fourth album. Yeah. Yes. And I believe from some description I read, you were between drummers at the time. I think this had real drums on it. Hitler's knees did. Most of the tracks on that album were uh, Drum Machine, though, because we hadn't recruited our next drummer yet. I picked this, you know, above, after listening to all the albums through, this just seemed like this picked out a style of songwriting that we were not otherwise covering, you know, that there's something more punk of the era. You mentioned the monochrome set. That was the album where their influence came in. There's a track called Down to a Proton on that album. Sure. You know the monochrome set track, Love Zombies? Sure. The um, it's got that long introduction, and it's in uh, that's it's in six eight, isn't it? And uh, the track Sagittarians. That's a little bit kind of chords the monochrome set would have used. I was kind of looking at this because it seemed to set a midpoint between stuff like Red Light for the Greens, which are very accessible, happy little. I don't want to say novelty tracks, but some of the other songs like definitely have funny lyrics. You know, the I vote conservative. You could see the, the people enjoying that track, even if they don't understand the rest of your, if they don't like punk music, because of the humor gives a entry point to the lyrics. But then on every album, you seem to also have a, let's do something for 10 minutes. That's sort of like early period Pink Floyd, psychedelic. Those are just studio jams mostly, or those are? Yeah, possibly. Yes. In the freeze my days, certainly. Yeah. Right. And this one at being, Five minutes, 40 seconds sort of is between there. It's, you know, it's still a coherent song, but it's very earnest, as we've been saying. And it has some extended, I don't know if extended instrumental bits, but at least it lets it exist in this space. I mean, most, a lot of it is one chord. Yeah. Any other thoughts before folks hear that one? No, that sums it up quite well. Yes. It was one that we used to like playing live a lot in those days and it, it evolved so that we could play it quite well in the studio by the time we came to record it.
Yeah, so it's kind of got that minor key drone, you know, a Velvet Underground song. Those, some of the Velvet Underground songs can last a long time if once you establish that. But it has that nice little bluesy bend right in that initial riff, which is not the first thing I think of in terms of one of those Velvet Underground or, or even early Pink Floyd is probably even a better. Nice riff. little organ riff from Shuri there. Any thoughts on sort of how this kind of thing would come together? Would you just come in with that? initial riff and then just let Sheree, you know, let everybody come up with their own parts or, or was there some? Oh yeah. I'd have come up with the chords and everyone would have contributed. Clearly you're for something like the multi-bear that we just heard and a lot of the stuff on that, you know, it's very orchestrated to the point of, I assume you actually programming it. <laughs> so that seems to rule out 
And you were doing that at least by the 90s, right? Some of the, uh, the, the Creams albums, at least the first ones you said I saw were just home recordings. And clearly it's like, I'm doing these compositions using whatever software you had. That's a thing that started then in the early 90s or was there sort of this, I'm an orchestrator feeling that you had just from the start even? A luxury that we didn't, that came with home recording because you can spend as long as you like adding bits. I've never been into programming, particularly as such. It's mostly just played and made up as it goes along. Well, I guess that makes sense that it's not, even though you're using all synth sounds for some of this stuff, it's not super quantized. It has that very human quality. It's very much not super quantized, yes. I like a bit of chaos. Even back in the Deep Freeze Mice day, has that been a, we're going to capture something authentic right now. It's not going to be, or were you like, no, we need to do many takes of this because we can get it tighter, we can get it better. This is going to be the one that radio is going to pick it up. Was there any of that feeling in those days? We'd run through things however many times we did it to, to get a good performance, but we weren't Steely Dan, though. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I just didn't know if there was any kind of aesthetic of talking to somebody that worked with Alex Chilton. He would be just like, okay, we'll record five times, but we'll pretty much always use the first one because that's when the energy was there. And somebody else might say, but I just played an entirely wrong note at that point. It's just like, I don't care. That's where the human thing happened. I mean, is that the kind of aesthetic that I'm hearing on some of this stuff? We were a bit like that, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so or Bob Dylan would be another comparison because I don't know about later on, but in the 60s, what you hear on one of his records is the complete take. And they tend to have errors here and there, don't they? But it's the, it's the feeling that counts, really. And this, as far as the, the lyrics go here, this is not surrealist. I mean, it has just talking about Hitler's knees in particular seems a little... Do you even remember sort of where that image came from? This, this is, a, you're talking about, you know, when art can be a toilet wall. In other words, yes, the Duchamp. Uh, I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? That you're, you're some sort of post? So it's obviously using Hitler's knees to, as an image of things being crushed by the, the artistic fascists, aren't we? Not surrealist, although I expect that phrase I found hilarious when I wrote it back then. The thing that is oppressing, I mean, are you actually talking about the fine art world at this point? Are you talking about people putting out music like you are and how that pressure to do everything super tight? I don't know if there was quantize, there wasn't quantizing this early, but it was not that far after that. It's not so much that as the dictates of fashion. Isn't it? You're compelled to make the same kind of music everybody else is because that's how your career will progress. It's that's what it's to do with that. My early band, we had grand artistic goals, but also still like we really want a record label to pick us up. So like let's try to do I mean like Red Light for the Greens was like, oh, we've hit on something that's catchy. There's always a no matter how artistic you're trying to be. There's still like, I wouldn't say a commercial consideration, but like, I want people to actually come to my shows. I want people to like this. I want record labels to, you know, how much of that was even on your minds at this point? Or, or were you young and the independent artist? And we, you know. We didn't think about record labels very much. We always knew that that was a very, uh, it was a long shot that we were going to have a big career in the music business. So really, there's not much thinking about that, is there? It's not, not for us. I saw, at least on Bandcamp, one of your old albums in its original version was on some labels page. I didn't know if that meant, oh, this actually did get you, you know, a minor label signed you for these first couple albums before you started your own thing. Like, how did you release these before you, before Cordelia existed? It was all our own label back in those days. Okay. So just different names. In, in the 90s, we did some things with some uh, small labels in Germany, but not in Deep Freeze My Stays. The fourth album, the Ranch House one, there was an edition of that released in Greece by a Greek label, but there wasn't an awful lot of that kind of thing. I mean, was it because your tours that you would set up, were you touring pretty consistently, like at least once a year going out to a dozen cities or something? I at least saw some reference. In the 90s, we did quite a few tours. The Deep Freeze Moist did one, the Switzerland trip. Was it 86, I think? So you had not actually gotten to Greece to make that connection. That was just... No, no, we've never, never been to Greece. No, no, unfortunately, no. It's kind of a cliche among among American bands here of like, 
oh yeah, we're really big in Japan. That, you know, somehow the foreignness of, I mean, is that why a German label or a, a Greek label or something might sign you as like, oh, these, this is this cool thing down from England that maybe you actually get some cachet in those places that you've never been that you don't necessarily get in your hometown. We used to get written about in uh, magazines in Germany in the 80s. And we, we did go to Germany quite a bit later on. Actually, the sound of Hitler's knees, like if you were seeing this in German, I mean, aside from the Hitler reference, of course, but just you could be seeing this in German, it would completely sound like a natural, like something I would, not that I know too much about the German new wave, apart from Einstuturei Neubauten and a couple other bands like that. But was there a lot of cross-cultural contamination in terms of you hearing those kind of bands as well at the time? Crap rock bands were a big influence, yes. For me, particularly uh, Canon Faust. I mentioned you'd gotten into this experimental surf music. So you got a whole, several albums by the Thurston Lava Tube in the aughts. But it seems like this, the Melamine Division Plates. I mean, is this just that you just put out occasional albums by yourself under different names? Or is this an, a collaboration with some new people and you felt like you needed a, a new band name? That was all related to the experimental surf music project. It was fun. I just had a lot of fun inventing different bands. They're pretty much all of me. It would be nice to have a real band that did that, but probably my gigging days are over, I think. I'm getting a bit old for that sort of thing. All right. Well, so this is your second album under that name, Novosibirsk. Does that mean something in Russian or something? I don't know. Yeah, it's a, city, it's a city in Siberia. And the song we picked was the Morozovo Meteorite. Uh, the title refers to uh, a real meteorite strike in Siberia. Did you come up with that after the song or was that actually like inspired the content? I can't remember. It could have been either. But all of the tracks, there's a, a Russian theme there with um, all sorts of stuff to do with uh, Soviet military hardware. Also uh, using Russian themes in the music too. I find it hard to remember the titles of things. There's a track called Proton K. So I took the chords out of a classic Russian folk song and invented a new tune. But it's all, it's all very Soviet, that album.
Before we talk about that song, let's do our ad break. Would you like farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep? Would you like to not have to go to the grocery store and instead count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable? Well, take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh. I have personally, on my own dime, used this service repeatedly. The recipes are always good. They're always simple, even for somebody like me that's not good at cooking, but they come out fancy. I see one of the recipes this week is creamy lemon spinach ricotta ravioli. Now, I make ravioli from the grocery store, and it does not seem fancy. It's just frozen or fridge section pre-made stuffed pasta that I put standard spaghetti sauce on. Well, no, this has the little lemon wedges. It has bell pepper and parmesan. It is plated like something from a nice restaurant, 25% cheaper than takeout. So I get to feel like I'm actually contributing to my family's dining experiences and not just making a frozen pizza or throwing the pasta in the boiling water, whatever. Every week, there are 40 recipes to choose from. And you can just tell them your preferences. I put down vegetarian and they'll pick out some good stuff for you. Or you can proactively, as I do, go on the website, make sure you like those meals, maybe switch it out, maybe skip a week, skip every week. Heck, plus you can add snacks, sides. You can pick from a curated selection of over 100 items including for this summer crowd-pleasing eats from a backyard bratwurst bar to tangy key lime pie. This all makes summer entertaining very easy. So you're saving time. You're reducing food waste. You're always able to find something new that you will like. You can choose the fast and fresh recipes that are ready in just 15 minutes or less. You can choose calorie smart options. Go to hellofresh.com NEM50 and use the code NEM50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash NEM50. Use the code NEM50 for 50% off, plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Have you ever felt the hassle of swapping between different shows just to savor your favorite mix of genres? Well, say hello to your favorite audio hub, KWLFM. At QLFM, they get it. You love the diversity swinging between adult pop, modern country, and classic hits, so they thought, why not bundle it all in one place? They've woven popular genres into a single dynamic audio adventure, keeping your earbuds on their toes. But here's the twist. We're not just about the music. Our lively DJs aren't your typical hosts, but true entertainers who are here to share stories, add personality, and ensure your listening experience is nothing short of spectacular. Need a bit more spice? Check out our Saturday night dance party episodes where we spin everything from disco to hip hop and even throw in a country hoedown. Embrace yourself twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays when we play those once chart topping hits that have been lost in the sands of time. The cherry on top, KEWL FM is everywhere you are. Online at KEWL.FM or on your iPhone or Android device via our app, or through the Live 365 app, and we're perfectly synced with all systems like Alexa, Sonos, and more. So podcast listeners, gear up for the KEWL experience that's got everything. Visit KEWL.FM today. That's KEWL.FM. A lot of surf bands, at least that I'm familiar with, are, are just a three-piece, but here you alternate with the organ. Is that sort of in the tradition that you're drawing on, or is it mostly just the solo guitar, the Dick Dale thing? Well, if it was a real band, we'd do about six people, I think, for uh, this one. With uh, They nearly all have organ parts and Mellotron parts on. Mm. So it'd be an unusual surf band. Uh, that's experimental surf music for you. So this one starts and ends with that kind of what I was referring as, I don't want to say electronic gibberish, let's say electronic atmosphere. You've got this morse code something like that and, and then at the end it has another sort of wash of stuff not exactly the same but definitely related those are things that come during the mixing or are those actually part of the song if you were to play them live or probably occur spontaneously there's an awful lot of echo used on the album so nearly every track ends with some sort of echo trail dying away yeah, and this one has the sort of, I, I put orchestral tuning sounds. In fact, let me even just insert this about 11 seconds in. I've got a, a software instrument that uses a lot of sam orchestral samples, so I, I probably threw something in off there. Can't remember the name of it. Right after that...
Yeah, that before we're going to actually come in with the melody proper, we're going to have this two chord to sort of set up some tension before you let fly with what's initially an organ solo before the very nice guitar comes in. And he thought about how you're structuring that, how you're deciding which pieces go where. I mean, do these come out of, you know, jam sessions, you and your wife or? No, I'm making it up as I go along. It's an awful lot of improvisation involved. So like improvising to a click track initially, and then you sort of are cleaning it up and, oh, this is actually where this goes or. Quite often improvising to a drum track from another song and making decisions about the chord structure based on what the drum part does, which I think is probably quite an unusual approach. It's just a way of throwing a spanner into the works. So there's another song in your catalog that has this exact drum part, or at least an edited version of that. All right, so this is a real drummer, but not a real drummer playing this song. Yes, it could well be that, yes. I can't remember without examining it closely, but that's quite likely. Or I might have done something with the drums, just used bits of it. Yeah, I mean, you've got some very punctuated drums here. So the sort of stops and starts, you thought that maybe was in the other version, or was that the kind of thing you would orchestrate, even if you're using a part lifted from something else? Like, no, no, here I want it. You know, to stop for a, a measure or two. Yeah, it could be that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're very prolific. And I would think that that amounts to not second guessing a lot of things and maybe not even, you know, I've definitely talked to a lot of people that are like, once I record it, I don't even know what it is anymore. <laughs> I don't, you know, I've never listened to it again, but you're like revisiting all this stuff, remastering it. I mean, it seems like you have, this is not meant to be disposable art. This is your life's work here. No, yeah, I'd like to have a good version of it available. I'd like to keep it in print, yeah. Well, very, very well documented band, the Freeze Mice. They'll probably be better remembered than more famous bands from the period just because I've put a lot of work into making good CD reissues. Yes, curating. And I understand that if I had seen these CD reissues, I would have extensive liner notes about the creation of each little thing. At least you'd mentioned the, the history of Hitler's knees, for instance. Well, I don't know about the exact nature of the song, but it would have told you where we recorded it and stuff like Things that make no aesthetic difference, but are nice to have for the record. That you know who was in the room at the time. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I reissued a, or sort of did the first proper issue of a, an album that I had recorded in the year 2000. I was like, I know I work with these three drummers, I don't know exactly which of them played on which track. I sent it to them. Like, can you tell me, is this you? Got to be careful with this stuff. This song in particular, does this have Russian melodic influences that you could detect? I mean, it sounds like some really nice sort of 50s crooning in the main guitar riff. I don't think there's a specific derivation like that. It's just a tune I made up as I went along, really. I mean, this whole stumbling on this format, like the main thing you did in your bands, right? from 2000 to 2010, more or less. Was that a thing that played out? It seems like this is a hook that people could get a a handle on that maybe they might not know what you're doing with the creams because that was sort of stylistically all over the place. But this, almost anybody can understand just hearing two minutes of it. Like, oh, and now you're doing a Velvet Underground song in this style. And now you're doing a Beatles song in this style. And now you're doing Russian folk songs in this style. But it's that very familiar Dick Dale thing, but with some psychedelic stuff on top of it. The primary influence for experimental surf music was the the Ventures in Space album. Do you know that? I'm certainly familiar with it in general, but I have not spent much time with that album. Oh, you should dig that one out. It's uh, I think it was recorded in 1964, or perhaps it was even earlier, but way ahead of its time. You'll see where a lot of this stuff is coming from if you, uh, if you listen to that one. I mean, is this a pretty small niche community such that you've connected with let's do the surf fest there is a niche community yeah but um not that they generally approve of what i'm doing i don't think oh oh because they're more traditionalist or yeah that's that's right yeah well that's unfortunate i mean yeah i I don't know if there was a you know shadowy men from a shadowy planet the kids in the hall theme song i recall you know that being sort of one of my first 
introductions to like, oh, this is a pretty cool style of music. And then I knew a guy in, in Austin in the, in the 90s who played in a band called Squid Vicious that I went and saw many times doing this sort of Dick Dale thing. But it seemed like, I mean, you're saying Ventures in Space was all the way back. That's part of the tradition. That is not... Oh, yeah, it's way before that, yeah. Yes. So I remember Shadowy Men and the Shadowy Planet. I had, had their albums. They were one of very few bands that were keeping that kind of music alive in those days. It was before um, Quentin Tarantino single-handedly revived it by using some sort of instrumentals on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack that it almost died out. Shadowy Men were, were one of the ones keeping the flame back then. Let me play one more little section here because I really like a variation off the ah from the Beatles on back. Then we're going to take that basic thing, but we're going to double it and put in some bum notes and just make it extended and ridiculous. Are there variations off that trick that you've used in, you know, you've been doing this kind of music for, for 20 years now that are back in the catalog? Or is this a something you stumbled on for this song? I don't know. I'm, maybe I stumbled <laughs> on it for this song. I didn't necessarily think about it very hard. I probably just sitting there with a the guitar and, oh, I'll play this now. I mean, is there a thought, though, doing several of these kind of albums in a row? I mean, not consecutively, but for what are we going to do? What's the new thing? Or is it sort of like, this is just a mode you can get in, and you could probably do 40 albums in this mode, and neither of them would be any more sort of progressive than the previous one? Like, what is your take on this? Because as you said, a lot of people treat this as kind of a very traditional form. But the fact that you're doing experimental, like, does it have to be a new experiment every time? The idea of experimental surf music, it seemed to me, you could go a long way with that idea. There's a, a lot of scope there for going all over the place. I suppose there are certain things you've got to stick to. It should, it should be instrumental with a lead guitar. And singable, I think. The melody still has to be... And nice tunes are always good. Yes. It's, it's packed with tunes and obviously beers. I guess experimental can be one of the, you know, is it actually experimental? It's like progressive that people who are still doing progressive rock now they're probably doing things in the style of the 70s not actually progressing because even in the 70s it was supposed to not at 1976 go to pop symphonic it was supposed to go to art bears henry cow which i know henry cow is a really a band that you had some that you've worked with chris cutler that's actually progressive it's not even pleasant to listen to anymore it's not <laughs> for a normal person it's not stopping at Tchaikovsky or something and we're just going to make it sound bombastic it like actually has to get into 12 tone or atonal or John Cage something weird like I think where the, some of the deep freeze mice you know those those 10 minute rambling things they went there you know you're doing noise collages essentially the free of improvisation was something that came from Henry Cow especially so I remember seeing them live in and it must be 1978, the last year they existed, and realizing that they were making up most of what they were playing on the spot. And it was so impressive. That's something that the Deep Freeze Mice absorbed, uh, along with the Velvet Underground and the Beatles. That's something that stuck with me as well, making stuff up as I go along. Were you listening to Sun Ra or any like jazz at the same time? Oh, de yeah, definitely Sun Ra. Yes, yes. Sun Ra was another, another example of that. I had the, um, the Magic City album, which was the first one of his that I discovered and used to play a lot back then. So how does that interact with the punk sensibility that when I would get together as a young person and people just wanted to jam, I was pretty pessimistic about that because I'm not that great an instrumentalist and they're probably not the great instrumentalist either. And so I knew it was going to just be some repetitive, let's just get a groove on and it's going to go for 20 minutes and I'm going to be bored silly to sort of deserve to be able to improvise, it should be like, you know, the people Miles Davis would get for Bitches Brew. And, you know, those guys, like Sun Ra, could actually take it somewhere. But I think with punk, you got people that like, no, we could still do something that is in the spirit of that. It doesn't matter if I know how to really play guitar. You know, I had Jad Fair, a guy on here recently, who specifically has a guitar that he never tunes and has a spring in it so that he could just play stunt guitar that he can go you know that but he couldn't do like an actual melody 
if you forced him, like, because he, it's not constructed to actually hit pitches. So that was, you know, his way of, I want to do this improv thing and I want to express the rhythms of my soul as they're, you know, as I'm making them up on the spot, but without actually having to be some sort of expert player. Well, I like both, you know, like, that sounds interesting, the, uh, the jazz uh, guitar with spring. Or, I might have done something like that if I'd thought of it. I mean, it helps that you've gotten much better over time as a guitar player that like now, oh, you're a legitimate, very fast virtuoso when you want to be. Whereas when you guys were starting, it seemed like it's more of a, I don't know, were, were you aspirational or was there like, again, a sort of an attempted, this is more like what the Pink Floyd were doing in 1970 when they couldn't really play their instruments awesome either. It's just, we can create a soundscape out of this. Yeah, yeah there's an element of that, yes. The deep freeze mice, it took them a long time to get off the ground musically, really. There's a big difference between the first album and the fifth one. Is that more just playing out more and sort of getting getting more chemistry with those? Yeah, just playing, thinking about it and adding bits. To enter the final stage of this, get into the 90s. To start with, you're singing all your own songs, occasionally passing to your keyboardist, I guess, you know, to have a female voice on something, but it definitely wasn't. We don't need the rock star tenor or something to pierce through this. But then you started playing with the Chrysanthemums, more collaborative thing. We'll hear something to wrap up. And then with Ruth Refrigerator, so, you know, a nice traditional female vocalist and Robin Gibson. They actually have somebody with a Robin with a Y that sounds like Robin Hitchcock was the first one I ever heard sing with a full-on British accent, not like the Beatles pretending to be Americans. So, of course, whenever I hear anything, like that's that sound that's truly mm. british yeah any thought about this sort of now you're back doing all your own lead vocals was there a, a point at which again you're kind of the stuff in the 90s is even though it's stylistically diverse it seems like in general between the chrysanthemums and the 90s stuff a lot more slick this could go on the radio if they were adventurous enough to play it any thoughts about even just why you weren't singing as often I don't like my own singing, and I, I always tried to find ways of getting out of doing it. Playing instrumentals is one way. Being in bands with people that could sing a lot better than me was uh, another way. So people like Ruth and Robin, uh, much, I'd rather listen to them sing than me. But now I'm stuck with it. Well, let me throw one in, a short song from a credit to Alan Jenkins and the Creams. So the third Creams album, 1994, The Eagle Hates Your Poetry. It's less than two minutes long. Do you remember anything about this? It's sort of part of this ongoing story, among which is somebody telling somebody else that she really hates her poetry. And then this song comes in and illustrates that. It's, it's much easier to explain that song than it is the multibar, because that's part of a rock opera, which has a narrative going all the way through with characters. The Eagle Hates Your Poetry, that's sung by the character Max Green. He's taken against Ariadne Metal Cream Pie's poems for some reason, and he's singing about how he hates them. You could quite specifically talk your way all the way, all the way through that one. Burn. 
I'd like to overhaul it with a document shredder A giant bird's hatching inside of me And all I know is that the eagle hates your poetry So I want to put in this one because this had the sort of birds beetlesy like you definitely have influences of stuff you grew up with but you know this one especially when the harmony comes in so is this you singing lead or is this Robin singing lead or he's harmonizing you I thought this was you singing lead but I wasn't sure if he was just imitating you No it's not me it's um uh, it's Peter Penguin Oh okay Well it definitely is the kind of I mean would you demo this kind of thing like when you were writing in this I might have done a demo I can't, I can't remember if there's a demo with me singing that but some of them draw demos from that album. All right. Well, maybe there's more exact pitches than you would have delivered, but it definitely sounds like your phrasing style. And definitely, you know, is this one you wrote, you wrote the lyrics, you wrote this whole rock opera in terms of the, hmm. how does they even work politically in a band that this is still my band. I'm writing these songs, but I just don't want to sing it. Like I find that can create some awkwardness in my experience. If I'm singing somebody else's song, oh, I want to tweak the words to make them sound more natural coming out of my mouth. Oh, well, I wouldn't know that would be okay. Well, it's got to tell the same story. So you can't really change the lyrics. But apart from that, no, I'm not. I was never a despot. Apart from on that album, which was a complete concept in itself, then people were could contribute things of their own. Well, let me play one bit, uh, 51 seconds in. It's cooling down, and God had just created all the adjectives. And dinosaurs read comics up there. Like that little keyboard, bah, bah, you know, that in the middle of this kind of nice, expressive guitar flowing off into the distance while there's narrative being delivered. Again, this has a nice Beatles, Birds, sort of core to it, but then some of the transitions, like it's like, oh, we took out a measure here and then you've got this part that just goes a little off the rails. Oh, I'm not frightened of adding a bit of dissonance <laughs> here and uh, I like some chaos. It's basically an opera, right? As you said, it's a, it's a rock opera so that that's exactly the kind of thing again, maybe if you were doing that now, that might be a big orchestral hit or something. I, I don't know. It's a weird sound choice even for that moment. Oh, yeah, it could be, yeah, yes. It's just a chord you don't expect, isn't it? Some people wouldn't have done that, but... One of the ones off the new album, My Phone, song, like, I could picture a crooner doing this, you know, that you still have some really lyrical melodies coming out of these things, even though the way, the message that it's like the multi-bear, it's these talk-sung stories or whatever, any sort of thought about how you're balancing between something that might sound too cheesy or cliche if you just delivered it as a straight-up melody versus putting in these experimental elements. Yeah, it could have been a much nicer-sounding song without the, the noisy guitar and synth, but at least that one's a lot more easy to explain than the multi-bear, isn't it? As well, that's actually... You can tell what's going on all the way through on my phone. Sure, or in The Eagle Hates Your Poetry, even though you've got right at the beginning those nice two guitars together, but it's also got this synth sound of, you know, again, the sort of electronica. Like, that that's the thing. A bit of Hawkwind in there. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then, to wrap this up, I want to give one more. So, I guess the Chrysanthemums, is it more wholly a collaboration of you and Terry Burroughs here? Like, are you writing all these songs? The, the one you had picked was from your sort of reformation for the, this one-off decoy for a dog napper 2022, which I did not, if I had more time, I might've actually gone and watched the, the relevant Scooby-Doo episode that this whole album was based on. But the fact that you've got, what, an hour of plus of material, is it going through every beat of the actual cartoon or is it just, is it much more loose than that? I didn't see. Oh, well, it's, it's more loose than that, yeah. It's, uh, there are all kinds of things you can, different approaches you can take. Terry tended to write songs which are little character studies of the people. And most of mine are, are taking some little element that's more of a tangent. Like, um, though, is it uh, you're going to play... Um, Nobody's Getting My Hair is what you picked, yeah. In the cartoon, 
bit shaggy, who's worried he might be scalped by uh, Geronimo. <laughs> this is all sounding familiar. And the fact that it's a reference to that, and stylistically, this song just sounds super 60s. Like, it sounds like it's more about that era than about, you know, what Scooby-Doo in particular. That You know, that's just a cultural artifact of that era, you know, that infected our childhoods. Still mine in the in the 70s, even. The sound of the music isn't much to do with Scooby-Doo. No, no. Sure, sure. Yeah, any thoughts just to introduce this in, in terms of how collaboration is fitting in with your solo work as your career has progressed here? Well, this was recorded completely differently to my stuff. This is organized, mainly organized by Terry back at his house in London. So the sound of it is, is more to do with him, although I'm commenting on things as he goes along. And How tight is the, is the collaboration? Like, do you subject each other's lyrics to scrutiny and improvement? Or is it just, no, this is a Terry song and this is a your song and then it's just instrumentally... Um, well, we collaborated on quite a few, uh, mainly me writing lyrics to his tunes, but we're not very particularly critical of what the other one's doing at any point at all. There might be some technical problem, but it was all very easy to... Things that Terry might do that I wouldn't, but that's okay. That's part of a collaboration. Sure. Unless it's like, we're going to collaborate for the purposes of coming up with the platonic Uber song... <laughs> that nobody could criticize for any reason because I will get rid of all of the antisocial stuff that comes out of you and you'll get rid of all the antisocial stuff that comes out of me. But I don't know, that'd probably just end up with a slick work. You'd end nothing. up with nothing, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the why that's why the like Elvis Costello, Paul McCartney partnership did not become something more than getting together a couple of times is because it's not actually that fun to try to write <laughs> at loggerheads like that to create a thing that's greater than the sum of the parts, as opposed to just a very permissive, that's twice as many ideas on the table. That's a, a more fun way to collaborate, I think. Well, that's an interesting example. Have you read Elvis Costello's autobiography? The beginning of it. I, until I get him booked for the show, I'm not going to finish it. But yes, I've read the first third. Oh, I thought it was interesting commenting on his collaborations with McCartney and also Bert Bacharach. He says that both of those would not tolerate any deviation from a melody that they'd written. So Elvis Costello's instinct was if he wanted to stick an extra word in, he'd do that because the words uh, outrank the music. But Paul McCartney wouldn't say, no, no, you've got to, this is the tune, you must stick to it. But uh, on, on the Chrysanthemum's album, that Terry wouldn't do that with my lyrics. He just puts up with me putting in way more words than will fit in a line and tries to accommodate it. Well, and collaborating on a tune is a particularly difficult. I don't know if people do that, really. I mean, there's a lot of, I wrote the verse and then you wrote the chorus, that kind of thing. But that's not, I like your tune for the verse, but let's just move. Let's have it go up there. Like, you have to have a real trust to do that kind of stuff. Well, you can do that, but we didn't work that way on that album. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was a lot of fun immersing myself in your your work. The chrysanthemum. So I, I should blame Terry for why the old chrysanthemums albums are the only thing in your catalog that's not on Bandcamp or the streaming services. It's because it's his. Yeah, that's Terry's fault. Yes. So go harass him <laughs> because I really enjoy. They're on YouTube. I should say those those first couple albums that you did with him. Those are some of the most sort of explosive, inventive stuff. That but there's also you know Roots Refrigerator. Anything anytime where you have a lot of voices you know, literal voices. And it makes it harder to, for me to get a handle on as opposed to the deep freeze, my stuff that I felt like, oh, okay, I, I kind of understand your point of view and what you're doing. Whereas when we get to this, the 90s stuff, the creams or whatever, like I have to listen to this three more times before I <laughs> really understand how this fits. But definitely a, a, a cornucopia. Somebody on YouTube was saying, wow, just all this Cordelia record stuff is just a, such a overwhelming soundscape available. And so it's all there, folks. You can go stream it. Well, once you've dealt with all Stevie Moore, then it's... Uh... Right. You you may be close to as prolific as somebody like our Stevie Moore or Guided by Voices, but I feel like those guys have a consistent enough style or the Bevis Frond was another one that he has 40 albums or whatever. And I just listened to them all straight through and like, but I never felt like I have to listen to this one again to get what's going on. Whereas I feel like there's a lot of twists and turns in your stuff such that the whole album has passed me on first listen and like, I, what just happened? Let me, I need to go back 
which I think is the sign of, you know, it's something that's intriguing as opposed to just something that you were emitting that day, right? And everybody's got a style that they just emit. I get that a little more with the Thirst and Lava Tube that I felt like maybe I don't have to listen to all these albums because I kind of get the idea, but I guess that's, you know, that's the genre you were going into with that. Okay, yeah, I'm very impressed with the depth of your research that you put into this. Yep, here it is. Nobody's getting my hair. Thanks so much to Alan. You should definitely look up his records. You could look to cordeliarecords.co.uk. 
I think if you are a fan of the late 70s, early 80s post-punk bands that I like, then the Deep Freeze Mice in particular will work well in your catalog. I probably talked too much on that interview, but felt compared to share my experience immersing myself in that interesting and extensive catalog. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can find the links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope you'll support the effort either through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will give you the notes to this and most of my other episodes. But you can also avoid the ads and help make this podcast continue to happen just by clicking the paid subscription button if you're using Apple Podcasts. My next guest is Michaela Davis, a harp player who's also a very sharp pop country songwriter. That is the only one I have recorded to this point. And I have some really great ones scheduled for the rest of the summer. Hope you'll stick around. Incidentally, I am teaching a philosophy class this fall that you could take online if you're into that kind of thing, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash class for details. Hope you're doing well. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Meister signing off. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.